tomorrow. So we need to uh, uh, confess our sins if necessary to get back in fellowship for those who are at prayer meeting. I don't think that will be necessary. You haven't had enough time, hopefully, to get out of fellowship. Although I don't know about some of you. So we need to make sure we're in fellowship so we can uh, have the filling of the Holy Spirit to get into God's Word. And we need to cover a lot of territory tonight. So we need to sort of buckle our seat belts and get ready for the ride. So let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the your word that you have given us. What a remarkable thing it is when we reflect upon the fact that over hundreds, thousands of years, over couple of thousand years, you revealed specifically through men your word and your will. You have given us such a vast amount of information and it's beyond our ability to plumb its depths. And Father, it is absolutely without error and infallible in all that it teaches and all that it says. And Father, help us now as we study it. May we be challenged not only in our own spiritual lives, but in relation to our the application for this evening's subject, we pray that you would help us to see how it applies not to someone else, but to uh, each one uh, himself or herself. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, we've been studying James, and we sort of seem to be meandering around, and the subject is personal love. At the end of James 1.12, there's a reference to the fact that the crown of joy goes to those who love God. So we began to study the whole topic of personal love for God the Father as motivation in the uh, adult spiritual life, motivation to pursue spiritual maturity. And to get into that, to get into the whole subject of personal love for God, remember We are building a fortress through the study of God's Word as we take it in, as we learn it, assimilate it, make it a part of our thinking under the filling of the Holy Spirit as it becomes epinosis uh, doctrine in our soul. We start off with the entrance way into this fortress we're building around our soul and the entryway is through 1 John 1, 9, the first of the stress busters. There are ten stress busters in all. They are confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, uh, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, then a personal sense of our eternal destiny. It is at this stage, these are the basics. So you get these basics under your belt and begin to operate on them and you construct that foundation. Then you begin to move into more advanced uh, stress busters, more advanced spiritual skills, personal sense of your eternal destiny means that you begin to live in light of eternity. And then comes what I'm calling the love triplex, three stress busters. Personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind or unconditional love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. Once you master that, then you get into the tenth area, which is inner happiness. That's the theme of the book of James, the epistle of James, being able to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. So if we're going to face the tests of doctrine in our soul and the tests of life and have maximum inner happiness in our soul, then we have to master these other skills. And we've seen how James weaves these in to everything he says in this opening chapter. Now this love triplex here, Personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ is fundamental, especially for handling any form of test that involves people. Of course, one area in which people have, uh, in which believers have the greatest amount of people testing is in marriage and family. So we are looking at personal love and impersonal love and how that relates to marriage and what Scripture says. So last week, We started looking specifically at how God designed the divine institution of marriage, which is for believer and unbeliever alike. 
and we turn to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So let's just review there. I want to pick up a couple of loose ends. We I skipped past last week, and then we'll continue. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we saw that God created the human race with two sexes, male and female. Not only did they possess male and female bodies, but God designed the immaterial part of the known as the soul, to reflect the different roles, male and female. There is a male soul and a female soul, and there are specific distinctions between them. And when people try to say that, that the, uh, men and women are just interchangeable, they're all just because they're human beings, uh, one can perform the same way as the other, where that may be true in some areas, Ultimately, there are distinctions, and if you overlook those distinctions, the result is going to be tragedy, both socially, uh, as w- both in marriage, socially, as well as personally. There will never be real happiness if you are trying to function in a way that God has not designed your soul. So there are male and female souls, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Point two, by way of review, the male is given primary responsibilities, Adam Specific is who we're talking about here, Adam in the Hebrew. The male is given primary responsibilities in the Garden of Eden to guard and take care of it. That, we discovered, was found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. He possesses the image of God as does the female. He is the ruler of creation as God's personal representative. Though he has various tasks to perform, to cultivate and keep the garden, as well as naming the animals and other responsibilities, none of these responsibilities are burdensome or frustrating in the perfect environment of the garden. He has responsibilities. That's um, divine institution number one, is individual responsibility. He has responsibilities and they are not burdensome or frustrating. That's important to remember that in light of what happens after the fall. Point number three. The man has been given given responsibilities, and then God created the woman to be his assistant or helper. And that is found in verse 20. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam... There was not found a helper suitable for him. So God, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. So that shows us that that the woman is fully equal to man in terms of her humanity. One is not less than the other. One of the greatest lies and greatest distractions that has been promoted in our culture in the last 30 years comes from the women's live movement and it basically says that um, I'll write it this way that, that subordination of role destroys equality now, we've got a great problem with understanding equality in this country. You can either have equality or you can have freedom, but you can't have both. And man-made societies and man-made institutions will never establish equality. When we come to the Declaration of Independence and it says that all men were created equal, that has to be understood in a judicial sense, that men are created equal in the eyes of the law. Obviously, all men are not created equal. Some are tall, some are short, some are dumb, some are smart. Some have musical ability, some have no musical ability whatsoever. There are all kinds of differences. People are born in areas where they have great uh, economic prosperity and opportunity and to families that give them tremendous uh, privileges and benefits and others are not born in such circumstances. There is no equality in in the cosmic system. When you come to this idea that subordination of role destroys equality, you have to understand that that has serious theological implications. 
what they are saying is that any time you come along and say that the man's the leader in the home and the woman is the responder, that you've automatically said that the woman is not equal to the man. Now, let's change gears and think theologically a minute. You have the Trinity, doctrine of the Trinity. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are, they have the same essence. They are co-eternal, and therefore they are co-equal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy, the, the Son was sent by the Father. Jesus said, "I can't do anything." unless the Father gives it to me. He has a role that is completely subordinate to God the Father. Yet he is completely equal. So the idea within the Trinity is that subordination of role has nothing to do with equality of person. If you buy the underlying assumption, if you buy anything in the women's lib movement, you are buying this underlying assumption, and if you believe that then you cannot believe in the Trinity. You cannot believe in salvation, and you cannot believe in Christ being who He claimed to be and doing what He claimed to do. They're inconsistent. That's why so often when you get into certain concepts in modern sociology and modern psychology, the underlying assumptions contradict basic principles that are covered in the Scripture. So the idea that subordination of role destroys equality is completely false. There are two opposing issues. God created the woman and he made her soul different and he designed her to be the assistant or helper to the man in achieving his God-ordained goals and tasks. Therefore, in the ideal state of the Garden of Eden, the wife's role is designed by God to assist the man to achieve God's will for his life. They are a team. One is the leader, and the other is designed to be the assistant or helper. A little caveat here for you women who aren't married yet, or not married. You need to make sure what God's will is for the man that you're considering marrying before you just make that decision, because you have to know whether or not you want to assist him to go where God's taking him. That's very important. Many women just meet some guy and they fall head over heels in love with him and get all emotional, and they don't know that they want to have anything to do with where he's going in life. Women need to make sure what God's will is for the man's life before they're willing to sign on to assist him for the rest of their lives. Point number four in way of review, man's union in marriage before the fall was a unity that was primarily a soul union and secondarily a physical union. Sex was designed for recreation in the garden as a celebration of the soul rapport of the marriage. Soul rapport first, then physical rapport. Procreation was only a secondary feature as far as sex was concerned. And when we come down to verse 24 and 25, we read, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that's one of those odd little words we find in the Bible that translators choose to use because they're just too embarrassed about the realities of life to clearly translate it. What in the world does cleave mean? Well, it translates the Hebrew word dabach, D-A-B-A-Q. Now, if we want to understand clearly what that word means, then let's see what the Holy Spirit has to say about it. We don't want to have time to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 5, I think it's around verse 27. Let me check it real quick. In Ephesians 5... In the marriage passage there, there is a quote from this verse in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.31 For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. How does the Holy Spirit have that translated in the Greek? The word in the Greek is pros 
proskolao, P-R-O-S-K-O-L-L-A-O. It means sexual intercourse. It's very clear. Yet no translator seems to have the nerve to really come right out and translate it the way the Bible says it. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall have sexual intercourse with his wife and they shall become one flesh. Sex was therefore in the garden before sin and has nothing to do with sin. I remember getting in conversation with somebody years ago and they were trying to tell me that the fruit of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was sex. And that would make sex inherently sinful. And that's just not true at all and that comes out of various middle age heresies from the Middle Ages. So, man was to leave and cleave, which means to have sexual intercourse. So, sex was a major feature in the garden, in the marriage between Adam and his wife, and had nothing to do with sin. Now, that those first four points that we've covered all have to do with man and the woman in the garden before the fall. In other words, that's the standard. You always go back to the standard you never deal with post-fall situations because they're affected by sin. And one of the things that's happening in the Christian way of life is you are being sanctified. Phase one, salvation, is justification. Phase two, salvation, is sanctification. Phase one, you're saved from the penalty of sin. You do not have an eternal destiny in the lake of fire. Phase two, you are saved from the power of sin. That means... Through the sanctifying effect of the Word of God, Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Through the sanctifying power of the Word of God, number one, and the Holy Spirit, number two, you are reversing the effects of the fall in your life. Now, you'll never roll them back completely because you will always have a sin nature in this life. And we will always struggle with the sin nature in this life. But part of what is happening in sanctification is we are reversing the, the, the dynamic effects of the fall in our life to a certain degree. And that applies to marriage as well. So that brings us to point number five, that the fall and the consequent curse had a devastating impact on the man and the woman and how men and women would relate to each other in their divinely ordained roles. Let me go over that again. The fall and the curse had had a devastating impact on the man and the woman in terms of their relationship to one another and their divinely ordained roles. And we looked at that last week, that the woman is told that she is now going to have, have pain in childbirth. And the implication there is that there would have been childbirth before, but now there will be pain and suffering. And then it says, yet your desire shall be for your husband. And we saw that that is not sexual desire. That is a desire to control. So there is a desire to control. Desire to usurp authority and to run the household. The man, on the other hand, is told that the ground is cursed because of him. That means his sphere of environment was what? He was to take care of the garden. He was to cultivate the garden. He was to to keep the garden. Now the ground is cursed. So his area of involvement, his area of responsibility, is now going to be characterized by frustration, by disappointment, by toil, by pain, and by resistance. So he's constantly going to be struggling to fulfill his God-ordained mission. In reaction, the male generally, just as this is a general principle, to one degree or another applies to every, every woman, in the same way, in reaction, the male generally has a tendency to avoid his God-given responsibilities, especially in areas where he feels less competent. When faced with frustration and disappointment, it's easier for the male to function in an arena where there is not the daily characteristic of frustration. So we see what happens here is the woman wants to assume responsibility in areas 
where she's not been given responsibility. And the man, well, he wants to dump responsibility. But he, he also wants to be the one in control. So you have this push-pull between sort of a tyrannical concept on the one hand and a total anarchy within the home on the other hand. Now, there's only one solution to this problem. And the solution to that problem is Bible doctrine. And in the church age, we have a unique situation because we're given new instructions and new mandates. And, of course, we have the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to apply the Word of God. And under His control and through spiritual growth, we can actually see these consequences reversed within the marriage. And that's what is meant by having a Christian marriage. You have to understand the dynamics of what you're, you're struggling against in terms of the curse, but then you have to apply the Scriptures to that as you go forward. So point number five dealt with the fall and its curse and the impact it had on the, on the roles and the relationship between male and female. Point number six, the divine solution to the curse is provided at the cross through the unique spiritual life of the believer and the ten stress busters. So the divine solution to the curse begins at salvation and then continues as you learn to live the spiritual life and apply the ten stress busters to every problem you face, including every marriage problem that you face. Point number seven the divine solution to the problems of marriage are going to be found in understanding all the dynamics in the love triplex. Personal love for God is the motivation, impersonal love for all mankind as the foundation, and occupation with Christ as the goal. Personal love for God is the motivation, impersonal love for all mankind as the foundation, and occupation with Christ as the goal. And then point number eight, every marriage faces a number of distractions which can destroy and eliminate the romance between the husband and wife. And by romance, I don't mean emotional giddiness or sentimentality. I mean that true, deep, personal love that should exist between a husband and a wife. Distractions involve work, career, kids, hobbies, all kinds of different things. You name it, any detail of life can become blown out of proportion and become a distraction to a marriage and become a source of problem, a, problem, a source of problems. Impersonal love and personal love are designed to get you past those distractions. The Bible uses one word to describe this kind of love. It's agape. It has two facets. The foundation is impersonal love for all mankind, which is based not simply on the character of the person who is loving, but it is based on the character and the model and example of God's love for mankind through Jesus Christ. We are to forgive one another just as God forgave us in Christ Jesus. That's the model. The model is undeserved an unmerited favor, what we constantly call grace. So if you don't understand grace, then you're going to have difficulty in any kind of marriage, and frankly, you're going to have difficulty in any sort of relationship, because ultimately you have to operate on principles of grace whenever you deal with another sinner, and when you're married, I don't care how much you're in love with the person sitting across the table, they have a lousy sin nature. And that has to be dealt with under the dynamics of the spiritual life just as yours does. So we've been studying the concept of personal love. And we've looked at personal love for God under the dynamics in the Bible that described it as, as love for God in terms of devotion. That we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And under the category of fear or respect, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We applied that to, 
to Christ's personal love for God the Father, which motivated him to endure the testing that occurred on the cross when he went through unimaginable suffering, when he bore our sins in his body on the cross for those three hours, he didn't take himself off after the first five minutes and say, I can't go on. What got him through? What got him through was his personal love for God the Father. That's his motivation. He Also, his impersonal love for all mankind. So, in some respects, some of these characteristics that I've listed apply to both impersonal and personal love. But we've developed some, some of these apply only to personal, so we're going to list them under the category of personal love. And that is that this love is initiated. Now, let me give you a little idea of where we're going to go with this. In terms of every believer, all these attributes apply to your personal love for God the Father. But they're split out in terms of your relationship or the relationship between husband and wife. The aggressive or initiating side over here is comparable to the kind of love that the man should have for his wife. The responding love over here describes characteristics that should dominate the love that the wife has for her husband. Characteristics over here, it's initiating. It takes the initiative. It looks for solutions. It is, as I've already said, aggressive. Constantly seeking new ways to demonstrate its love for its object. Characterized by humility. Genuine humility and teachability are foundational to grace orientation. Without grace orientation, there can be no impersonal love. To have it, you must have impersonal love to have success in any marriage. Humility. There is intensity. There's focus. There's a goal. There's a desire to, to pursue the object of love. Not just long enough, as is the case with many people, Pursue the object of love until they get them down the aisle. And now that that goal has been achieved, we're going to switch to a different goal. That's not what we see here. This is a, a love that pursues to the point of marriage and then continues to pursue to the point of death. It never stops pursuing the object. There is an intensity there. A steadfast loyalty. It is exclusive completely loyal to the wife. Consecration has to do with being set apart. There is no other object of affection for the husband, only the wife. And then a dedication to her and to lead from the framework of Christian leadership. In terms of the wife's love, a responding love, it is emphasized as respect. In Ephesians 5.33, it shows deference to her husband. She shows respect. She never contradicts him or puts him in an embarrassing situation in public or with other people. There is admiration. He doesn't do that with her either, by the way. Admiration. Third, I've already mentioned it in terms of the broad category, respect. Honor, esteem, holding him up above all others, and consideration. Always trying to show consideration. When the man is operating here and the woman's operating here and you have this dynamic going back and forth between the two, it is a phenomenal thing to see. That is where you get a spiritually mature Christian marriage. That doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of time to develop. And the key to developing it is that both the husband and the wife make Bible doctrine the highest priority in their life. That's not just giving it lip service. That means they realize that if they don't learn doctrine, they cannot grow spiritually, individually, and it will not benefit their marriage. So they're going to manage to arrange their schedules in such a way that they are always going to be able to make it for learning the Word of God and have consistency in taking in the Word of God.
Now, when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, now let's turn there. Turn, leave, leave Genesis and turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. We have some very interesting mandates. Which I want to point out. We'll start with the husband. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23, we're told, For the husband is the head of the wife. Uh, let's look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this involves two aspects. First of all, impersonal love was present on the cross. For God so loved the world. Impersonal love. With God, he's perfect righteousness. But man was minus our. God cannot have personal love. There's no affinity, no attractiveness to God for someone who is a sinner. There's nothing there to attract God. Impersonal love is based solely on his character, who and what he is, who God is and what Christ did on the cross, and it has nothing to do with the sinner who is completely obnoxious to God. The sinner is repulsive to God. God hates sin, and the sinner is repulsive to God. He cannot have personal love for a sinner who is unregenerate. But in impersonal love, he can choose to act in the best possible interest of the creature, which is what he did. That's impersonal love. And in John 3.16 and Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see the emphasis on impersonal love. But here in Hebrews 5, I mean Ephesians 5.25, the analogy is related to Christ and the church. Christ's love is directed toward the church in preparing a bride for himself. So the analogy it has to do with a husband, and it's not simply impersonal love, but it involves the kind of personal love and devotion that Christ has in relation to the church. This is amplified in the next mention of the mandate in verse 28. Notice how it shifts. So husbands ought also to love their own wives. Here it's not as Christ loved the church, but as their own body. That's part of what Jesus summarized the second part of the law. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love others as ourselves. So we are the man is to love his wife as his own body. Why? General principle. He who loves his own wife loves himself. You become one with your wife. To do anything derogatory toward her, to do anything disrespectful toward her, to, God forbid, hit her or beat her or anything like that is self-destructive. It's not just hurting her. It is destroying your own soul. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So that gives us a couple of other adjectives to describe the kind of love that the husband is to have for the wife. He is to nourish his wife and cherish her, nourish her spiritually and Cherish her just as Christ also does the church. And that's personal love that Christ has for the church. Why is it personal love? Because at the moment of salvation, you receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. There is affinity between the perfect righteousness of God and the perfect righteousness that the believer now possesses, so God can love the believer personally. So this is where it shifts into, per- where it clearly shifts to personal love. And then in verse 33, Nevertheless, let each individual, there it's clear, it's still talking about the husband, love his own wife even as himself. So you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church, love your wife as your own body, and love your wife as yourself. And then at the end of verse 33, the wife is to respect her husband. This is not an option. This is a mandate. Now, how did Christ love the church? Well, one thing, it entailed sacrifice. We see this in Philippians chapter 2 in the Kenosis passage. We don't have time to turn there, but let me read it to you. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That applies within the marriage relationship. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. You can apply that to your marriage. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for interests of others. Don't be self-absorbed. Don't let arrogance rule. The three arrogant skills that rotate around each other and intensify involve self-absorption. 
When you're looking out for your own interests, you are self-absorbed. That leads down to the second arrogant skill, which is self-justification. Anytime you've been around, if you've ever been around anybody who is self-absorbed, sooner or later you say, why are you, why do you think that way? And then they begin to justify themselves and give you all sorts of reasons for why they need to have the universe revolve around them. Self-justification then leads to self-deception. And they become further and further divorced from reality as they try to make the universe rotate around them. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, that is, have this way of thinking for now. Have this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form, morphe, essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So right there we see uh, characteristics such as humility, sacrifice, and being a servant are what characterizes Christ's love for the church. And that's what should characterize characterize the love of a husband for his wife. So what we see at the end there in Philippians 2.9, Therefore also God highly exalted him, that is Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What do we conclude from that? That the path to glorification for Jesus Christ was through service, humility, and sacrifice. The path to glorification as a husband is through a genuine humility. Men, as hard as it is, you don't know it all. And you have to listen to your wives sometimes. They are intelligent creatures and they are perceptive. Wives, listening doesn't mean he agrees with you. He can listen and disagree with you. He can listen and not do what you want him to do. But listening means that he pays attention, he understands, and he does not demean your opinion. B, the path to glorification as a husband will elevate the importance of his wife, the object of his love, just as Christ elevated the church's need above his own need. He was willing to sacrifice his eternal position in heaven, or his, his, he was willing to limit the use of his eternal attributes and to become obedient to the point of death in order to take care of the object of his love, the church. For the husband, this means you regard the wife's wishes, desires, and opinions often as more important than your own. The path to glorification as a husband is through your making her interests, her priority, her interests, your interests, her priorities, your priorities. Remember, above all, that in order to accomplish the task, Jesus took on the form of a servant. Mark 10, 43 and 45, Jesus says, But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. It wasn't a question, did he have a right to? Did he have the power, position, and prestige for it? But that was not the goal. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So that entailed for our Lord goal orientation. He had his eyes fixed on the goal. As a husband, you have to have your eyes fixed on the goal. If you have entered into marriage, your goal is to have a successful Christian marriage. Period. That takes precedence over your goal to have a successful professional life. A successful business a successful, dare I say it, golf game. The priority is to have a successful marriage. That is the priority. Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is occupation with Christ, the third in our triplex of love. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The goal at the cross was to pay the penalty for sin. 
Christ endured incredible, undeserved suffering, putting our interests ahead of his interests in order to accomplish the task. This means husbands must sometimes get involved in many things they don't wish to in order to accomplish the goal. Once again, the goal is a successful marriage that glorifies God. That takes precedence above success in your job, success in athletics, success in whatever distraction you have in your life. Always remember, though, it takes two to make a successful marriage. One of the one of the problems I think that's entered into a lot of superficial thought on marriage, Christian marriage, over the last few years now that the siren's gone by, has been the idea that because the husband is the leader of the home, if anything goes wrong in the marriage, it's automatically his fault. Well, that denies the fact that the wife has her own volition. She has to respond both to God in terms of the divine mandates for marriage that are listed in the scripture, as well as to her husband. The wife can either react or respond. When she reacts, the sin nature is in control, and it's just going to lead to further problems. When she responds, then she's going to operate on the mandates that are given in Scripture. True spiritual leadership in the home might even produce a hostile reaction in the wife if she is negative to doctrine. But that doesn't justify giving up. Christ doesn't give up on us when we're negative to him. And remember, the model is always Christ and his relationship to us, not what other people do, friends, families, or someone down the street. The issue is how Christ dealt with you in the midst of your sin. Point number three, this entails assuming the responsibility as a godly husband to accomplish the task of spiritual leadership in the home. Now, I want to wrap this up by developing something that I started thinking about several years ago, which I call the doctrine of the dance. Because I think dancing has a lot to say about how a marriage operates. You see, as soon as you start talking about the husband being the leader and being the authority in the home and the woman as the responder, a lot of people start getting a lot of confusing ideas. Some men get the idea that they are suddenly the drill sergeant. And they call that wife to attention. One, two, three, four. That's not what we're talking about. That's not the leadership of a servant that we've been describing. Sometimes the women get the idea that that means they're supposed to be some doormat for this loser who just can't manage to do anything right and is a spiritual failure as well as a failure in every other area of life. So I, several years ago, I had as a hobby dancing. Took a number of lessons. Listened to a lot of the different ladies in the dance classes, their response to different men, because we all dance with different people. And it was quite illuminating. Now, for this comparison, I want you to understand I'm not talking about the modern form of dancing where two people get out on the dance floor and start gyrating each to doing whatever they want to do, doing their own thing. Now, for many of you here, that's all you know of dancing. And unfortunately, that's how most marriages are. The two people decide to live together, and they just get in the same house, and they just gyrate and do their own thing, irregardless or regardless of what the other person is doing. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about dancing. I'm talking about the kind of dancing that has rules. The kind of dancing where the man leads and the woman follows and where there are specific steps and specific responses. And if you've never done that with your husband or wife, you ought to do that. It it might be illuminating in terms of the communication skills in your marriage. So I'm talking about Ballroom dancing. First of all, dancing involves teamwork. With clearly defined rules and roles for each member of the team. When the rules are followed and when each person fulfills his role, 
the result is a fluid movement of grace and beauty. Just think about what you see when you watch ice dancing at the Olympics. When one or the other messes up or tries to fill the role of the other, the result is catastrophe. I always used to, it was interesting, you could always spot the women in a dance class who were the the women's livers. They hated to follow the man. You always had to lead them with an extra firm lead because they were always fighting you, trying to decide that you ought to go this way when you're trying to lead them that way. And they're always trying to back lead. And there were some women who would just give up after a couple of months of, of dance class because they just couldn't take it when a man was trying to make the decisions and they didn't have any say in the matter. So dancing involves rules and roles. When one or the other messes up or tries to fill the role of the other, the result is catastrophe. Rules such as the man leads and the woman follows. The man has to hold the woman a certain way. He has to hold her hand one way. He has to place his hand on her back by her shoulder blade. Gently, not too hard, not too soft, because he has to to lead her and she has to feel that that pressure against her uh, against her shoulder blade so she knows which way to go. The man always begins on the left foot, the woman on the right. Now, Christian marriage involves teamwork with clearly defined rules and roles. The husband is the leader. He's the authority. The woman is the responder. She is to submit to the leadership of her husband. The passages that discuss this are in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, Colossians 3, 18 to 4, 1, and 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Now, I'm using the word teamwork. I want to define that. Teamwork is a relationship between two individuals, for the sake of this study, that is characterized by mutual cooperation and defined areas of responsibility and leadership directed to the achievement of a specified common goal. Let me say that again. A relationship between two individuals characterized by mutual cooperation and defined areas of responsibility and leadership directed to the achievement of a specified common goal. So in point one, dancing involves teamwork. Christian marriage involves teamwork. Point two. Together without a common goal. If one's going one way and the other's going another way, they can't dance together. Similarly, two believers cannot achieve a Christian marriage if they do not have the same goal. Amos 3.3 says, How can two walk together unless they be agreed? How can two people do, accomplish anything in life together unless they're agreed as to what the goal is and how to achieve the goal? And the same is true about Christian marriage. Unfortunately, you can't pursue a Christian marriage if the husband's priority is work or profession and he doesn't care about spiritual things and the wife's goal is to have a Christian marriage. Neither can it work the other way. Then you just have to settle for your best. But if both the husband and the wife want a Christian marriage, then they have a mediator for every problem and every difficulty, and that's the Word of God. Two Two believers cannot achieve a Christian marriage without a common goal. If your common goal is occupation with Christ, and glorification of God in the spiritual life, then there's not a problem, a difficulty in life that you can't overcome. The goal of marriage between two believers is to produce a union of two lives which brings glory to God and is a testimony of divine grace before the human race and before angels in the angelic conflict. And this can only be accomplished when both the husband and the wife have as their personal goals the glorification of God. So you are no better in marriage than you are as an individual. And if as an individual your goal isn't right, then your goal can't be right in a marriage. Unfortunately, in many marriages, people just don't agree on the same goal. And so there's constantly going to be 
friction. If you're a believer in that unfortunate circumstance, then you must stick it out and do the best you can. That's not a prescription for bailing out and going and trying to find somebody who has the same goal as you. If you're the husband and your goal is is not to make your marriage a dynamic Christian marriage, then as far as God is concerned, you are a spiritual failure and your marriage will be a spiritual failure until you straighten out your relationship with the Lord. And divine discipline in this area is horrible and you don't want to go through it. If you're the wife and you don't want to get your spiritual act together and submit to the goal of glorifying God in your life, then you are generating terrible problems for your husband and you are sabotaging your children in terms of their spiritual life. When the common goal is a successful Christian marriage, then whenever conflict erupts, the final determiner, listen to this, the final determiner in every every conflict It's what is best for the marriage to glorify God. That's how you solve the problem. You say, what is best for the marriage? Not what's best for me, not what's best for you. It's not your way, it's not my way. Although one may may be correct, the issue is what is best for the marriage in terms of bringing glory to God. As soon as one or the other begins to emphasize their personal desires over the joint goal of the team testimony of the marriage, then that marriage is in trouble. Point number three. Like any team, dancing has specifically defined roles for the two participants. In dancing, the male is the leader and the woman is the follower. That means that the man initiates, plans, and directs the movement of the woman. The woman is the follower. She's got the harder job. She has to do everything the man does, only backward. Think about it. She never knows what's coming. The man is, should be a planner, a thinker. If you are leading and you're a good dancer, you're thinking five, six, seven, eight moves ahead. You know where you're going and what you have to do to get there, and you know everything you have to do in order to produce the intended result. She doesn't know what you're getting ready to do. She has to be completely flexible and respond perfectly to each little hint of movement. And so your movements of leadership in dance, the man's lead must be very firm and must be very certain. Not too hard, not too soft. In Christian marriage, the husband's the leader. He's the one with final authority and he is the one that God will hold accountable for the spiritual welfare of the family. Now, men, the most superficial form of fulfilling that role is for you just to get up and make sure sure the family gets to church on Sunday morning. But like I said, that's very superficial. Your role involves teaching your children, praying together, praying with your wife, praying with your kids, setting priorities, and making sure that everyone gets to Bible class on time, every time. It involves leadership through setting the example. In Christian marriage, the wife is the responder. First, she needs to be responding to God and second, to her husband. If she puts her husband first in this instead of God, then she will be setting herself up for a continual cycle of reacting and then responding. And she will be on an emotional yo-yo that will drive her crazy in a short time. She has to build... She has to put the Lord first so that she can build her respect and love for her husband on the principle of impersonal love. The standard is always what Christ did for us and how God demonstrated his love for us. Point number four. In the dance, the leader and follower positions are not related to the skill level of the dancers. If the man is not very skillful, then the woman has to respond to his level and not try to backlead him through moves he's not capable of. If the male leading has, has superior dance skills and knows more than the lady, then he doesn't try to force her to do things that she doesn't know. The leader and follower positions are not related to skill level. 
That means that, ladies, you may be a lot better leader. You may be a lot smarter. You may have a higher IQ and you may be more spiritually mature than your husband. That never gives you the right or the justification to take the reins in your hands. See, it doesn't have anything to do with skill level. It has to do with the fact that you have a certain kind of soul and he has a certain kind of soul. And if you start operating like the man, you're going to to frustrate yourself immensely and destroy any potential of happiness in your life. Point number five. In dancing, each person has specific footwork that must be learned and practiced in order to develop grace and fluid movement. You must learn and practice. It's thinking, thinking, thinking. You get out on that dance floor and you're trying to learn complicated moves, it's like any other form of athletics. It's thought, thought, thought. You have to constantly be aware of where you are, where you're going, and how you're going to get there. If you're the the man and if you're the woman, you have to constantly try to figure out how he's going to get you there and how he's going to get out of this mess he just got you into. The same is true for Christian marriage. Each person has specific tasks and roles which they must learn and develop. It doesn't happen overnight. When you're 22 years old and you've just been married six months, you're not there yet. It takes time. The husband needs to deal with his wife in grace and she needs to deal with him in grace because it's going to take years to develop that cohesion that comes together. It only happens with time. It takes effort. It takes hours of Bible class to learn spiritual maturity. And along the way, you're going to make a thousand mistakes. And so is your partner. That's why you have to have grace. You have to treat him in grace. He has to treat you in grace. Each partner must have as part of their attitude a desire based on humility and teachability, not arrogance, to help the other person improve. Nobody else ever sees you the way your spouse sees you. And that demands, notice I said humility and teachability, not arrogance, not nagging, not continually repeating something, not browbeating something with somebody, but it's based on humility and teachability. Six, in dancing the male through good leads can make his partner look graceful and keep her from making mistakes. However, if his leads are too strong, she is overpowered. And the woman will look very stiff and awkward. She has no idea what's going on or she's being forced one way or the other. And he will destroy all grace, make her extremely uncomfortable, and perhaps even create a certain amount of physical pain. Furthermore, In dancing, if the male exercises too strong of a lead, he will destroy and prevent her from exerting her own style and grace under his leadership. On the other hand, if his leads are too weak, the woman will not know how to respond to him and will be in a frustrating position of always trying to guess how to follow. Where is he going? Why is he doing it this way? She doesn't know which way to go and she'll often trip and stumble on the dance floor. The same is true of Christian marriage. The man who leads too strong is a tyrant and a bully and has no concept of grace, impersonal love, or humility. And frankly, the man who ever strikes a woman, in my opinion, is a loser in life and a loser. He'll be a failure in marriage and he'll be a failure in the spiritual life. There's no room for that at all. On the other hand, the man who has a who weakly leads is going to be run over by his wife because somebody's got to make the decisions. He's going to be nagged, manipulated, and be made miserable in his life. Seventh, the male as the leader plans and initiates the various moves. As the leader, the, man, the male in the dance plans and initiates the various moves, and he always has to be thinking ahead. He was thinking about where you're going on a crowded dance floor. You have to decide how you're going to weave between other people or obstacles and how to avoid them. 
He must maintain control because the woman cannot see where they are going. Now, in terms of Christian leadership, what that means is the man is the leader and planner. It doesn't mean he does it without communicating to her. There has to be communication. But he is the one who must be thinking, planning, looking ahead, assuming responsibility for the future, assuming responsibility for spiritual issues. He is the one who thinks, plans, and initiates. He's the one who's responsible for directing the family spiritually. Point number eight. In in the dance, the leader must learn and study his partner to know how to lead her effectively. He has to learn and study his partner to lead her effectively. In Christian marriage, the husband needs to study his wife so that he can learn to lead her effectively. That's part of aggressive personal love. He needs to make her the priority in his life, not just until they get married or until they have kids, but until the day they go to be with the Lord. The priority for the Christian husband is to continually study his wife so that he can be, set, be a successful leader. The highest goal in Christian marriage is to be successful. And your success in Christian marriage is 10,000 times more important than any other arena of success in your life. That's what's going to count for eternity. It has angelic conflict implications. Point number nine. The man must learn to listen to his partner in dancing. I can't tell you how many times I'd be talking with some lady and she would say, well, you know, I I, kind of like dancing with him, but he never listens. I'll tell him he's not leading strong enough and he never responds. Or I'll tell him he's leading too harsh and he's pushing me around. He never listens. The man must learn in dancing to listen to his partner because she's the only one who knows whether your lead is strong or weak. She's the only one who knows anything about what you're doing on that dance floor. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. What matters is how good she thinks you are. The same thing is true in Christian marriage. Only the wife knows how well you are leading, men. Remember, men, humility and teachability are part of grace orientation. Grace orientation is part of impersonal love and the foundation for successful Christian marriage. So you need to learn to listen to your wife, not just to what she says, but listening between the lines, not just hearing and reacting, but maybe waiting a day or two to think over what she says. And no matter how much you think you are leading correctly, she's the only one who really knows how you're doing. Point number 10, the woman must learn to communicate to the man without challenging his tender male ego. A lot of men have trouble in this area. But if they're not operating on the arrogant skills, if they're a believer, and they've got humility and teachability, and they're not operating on self-absorption, self-justification, and self-deception, then they should be able to Listen with objectivity. That only comes from learning doctrine. The more doctrine you learn, the more objective you can be about yourself. Instead of operating on subjectivity and reacting to something your wife says, you can stop and be objective and weigh it because the issue isn't arrogance. The issue is developing a Christian marriage that brings honor and glory to God for eternity. Not whether you're right or whether she's right. Point number 12, the woman must learn to let the man lead in dancing. Nothing is more frustrating in dancing for a man than to constantly fight a woman who is trying to back lead a dance. She's trying to get you to go this way and you want to go that way. Same is true in marriage. The Christian wife must learn to let the husband lead. That means you have to learn to let him make mistakes. Those mistakes may be painful For you. But he will never learn to lead without falling on his face. And most husbands learn to be good husbands through on-the-job training. There's no place else for them to learn. 
So the Christian wife needs to learn to let the husband lead, to make mistakes, and that means she has to be vulnerable. Point 13. In dancing, the woman is often unaware of where the man is going and of his plans, and she must constantly be ready to respond and shift according to his lead. This means she must develop incredible amounts of flexibility. Men, you need to learn to appreciate that in your wives. We all, I don't want to say you men, we all need to learn to appreciate that in our wives because we have a tendency to go this way one day and maybe that way the next day and they're just trying to respond. As the responder in Christian marriage, the wife also must be flexible in relation to the husband's leadership. When she becomes self-absorbed and arrogance takes over, then she becomes inflexible and the result is a breakdown in the marriage and she'll go into reaction instead of responding to your leadership. Point 14. The woman must continue to follow as best she can no matter how faulty the male's leadership. That's true in dancing. If the man is a failure in his leadership, if he can't lead correctly, if he's forgotten the steps, then she can still try to bring a little grace out of his error. The same is true in marriage. The woman's testimony in Christian marriage is not dependent upon the male, but on her fulfilling her role responsibilities before God to the best of her ability. Three more points. Quickly, point 15. Trouble starts when they quit thinking and start emoting. How many times you see it on the dance floor? They practice and practice, and all of a sudden they just get into the music. And then they forget what they're doing. All of a sudden they're in the middle of a complicated move, and where am I? What do I do? Same thing happens in life. Trouble starts when you quit thinking and start emoting. You start taking one another for granted and thinking that things are just going to happen on their own. They won't. We live in the cosmic system. You live with a sinner. Your spouse lives with a sinner. You have to constantly think and work on it spiritually. The moment you stop thinking, you put everything in danger. Point 16. Success ultimately is based on consistency and in application of doctrine. Many mistakes are made along the way. But as long as the goal is kept in focus by both the husband and the wife, every problem can be overcome. Never stop working on the basics and never forget the goal. Glorifying God through a Christian marriage. Point 17. As the two work together over time, mutual respect and admiration develop, confidence increases, and soul rapport increases which leads to an increase in physical rapport and the blessings are phenomenal both in time and eternity with our heads bowed and our eyes closed Father we thank you for the clear instruction of your word which helps us understand this vital area of our lives our marriages the role of husband and wife Father we pray that you will help us to meditate on these things that we have studied tonight that the Holy Spirit will help us to understand how they apply to each of us, that we would think about these things personally and not in terms of how they apply to our spouse, because all application begins with us. Father, we just pray that you would help us to put these things in practice, that you might be glorified in our marriages. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.